Hello, my friends. My name is Aureli. Education Monsters is a podcast that discusses multicultural education. Good morning, everybody on Education Monsters. I'm here with my friend Cole. And Cole is, lives right now in Ann Haber in the United States. And I'm here in Montreal. So we're meeting over Zoom. So welcome to you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm so happy to have you here as well because you're the first musician I have on this podcast. And actually, I'll introduce uh, yourself to our listeners. So Cole has a PhD in solo piano performance at the University of Michigan. He got that in 2016. Congrats to you. Yay. Thank you. And right now he's working in freelance. He started a YouTube channel and that's this amazing project that I want to talk about this pandemic because that could save like someone's career and you don't necessarily have to reorient yourself if you're out of job. So that's an amazing move. And he's also teaching individual piano lessons and that's amazing. So he's performed in different countries all over the world, in Asia and South America and Europe and in America, obviously. So I'm very, very excited for this episode. It's going to be very, very special. Welcome to you again. Thank you. Thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little bit um, miss uh, normal social activities and uh, going to concerts and things like that. But for the most part, I'm getting a lot of work done. And yeah. Do you mostly miss going to concert or performing at concerts? It's interesting, actually, because at first I really missed going to concerts because there were some that I was looking forward to and they got canceled and so forth. And, you know, performing myself is oftentimes a kind of a uh, stressful experience, <laughs> even though I really enjoy it. You know, it's, it's cathartic and, and really wonderful. But um, so I thought, oh, it'll be nice. It's going to be really nice to have a break from doing concerts for a while. And I've realized that I've really started to miss <laughs> actually having interaction with the uh, audience members and you know, really feel like I'm, I'm really playing in a real hall and everything like that. So Yeah, so now with the pandemic, there's a bunch of performances happening online so you can sign up onto a Zoom link or something and then mm-hmm. attend the concert. And it's also interesting because you can do that from home. You can also do that if you're not in the city. So it, it gives you access to more concerts, more shows, gives you more freedom also in terms of obviously it's not the same quality. As a real concert, you don't feel immersed into the same musical experience, but do you think that you would be open to doing concerts online? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's wonderful. It's wonderful that we have such a huge array of opportunities to to hear music and to hear musicians from you know, faraway places that we normally wouldn't uh, encounter, and that this situation does kind of funnel us in that direction to just experience more, more variety of music. I think the thing that I most miss. I mean, you were asking if it's replaceable, I think, is what you asked. And um, I would say not. And it's actually for maybe a kind of not obvious reason, because what I find is that when I listen to a concert on a, you know, a live broadcast or something, it's so easy to get distracted. <laughs> I say this probably as I as shouldn't, but I just feel like with our conveniences nowadays, with all of our technology and, you know, text and everything it's a very good thing but it's also it's harder to have this kind of just really focused experience where you're really living in the music that you're hearing and i didn't realize before just how valuable that was in an actual concert because in a concert you have to go there you have to just you know you have to kind of be respectful and sit there quietly and it it really helps me to to really have a musical experience that's Kind of unforgettable. Yeah, so that's the thing that uh, I'm most hoping to get back to once the pandemic kind of levels out. But I am very glad to have had the experience to one reach out to new audience members that I never would have met before. You know, I, I'm like corresponding right now with with an amateur composer in England, and he's going to write a piece for me. Actually, he's a very interesting fellow. He's retired in his 60s, and he's 
a composer and I never would have met this person probably or talked to him or anything if it hadn't been for the pandemic because I wouldn't have made this channel and he wouldn't have been maybe looking for, for musicians to listen to himself. So, You brought a very interesting point, the quality versus quantity. And it's true that when you were mentioning the concerts online, you get the full experience because you have to turn off your phone and you have to be present and give your full attention to the concerts. Although there might still some people who text during concerts, like those rude people. Like personally, when I discovered your blog and your website, I listened to your concerts while I was eating dinner. And to me, it brought so much happiness to my dinner. It actually complemented the food that I made for myself. And I really appreciated that I could replay that. And something that we're going to talk about in your YouTube channel is that it's going to give more accessibility to people who wouldn't have this chance to uh, afford concerts. Because I know in Europe, it's different than in the US. In Europe, we like to promote the arts, theater, music, and especially for young people under 26, they can go to free stuff or pay something ridiculous like five euros to attend concerts. But it might be more complicated for students in the US who are crippled in student debt and how can you afford going to an opera, for example. It's important to have this choice of being exposed to something without costing you a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's definitely a yeah, huge advantage, especially since, you know, uh, when you make events like that available for younger people, easily available like that, I mean, you're just, you're training the next generation of people who are going to go to concerts or, you know, support the arts when they're able to. And, and that's, uh, so I, I always think that that's such a valuable thing to do. So I'm glad that uh, maybe this, this whole pandemic is going to give us more opportunities to do that, to make, just make things readily available to people who otherwise would have difficulty. On the other hand, I've also heard musicians being worried about this pandemic for their career, as in, we won't have the money now, therefore I should find this backup parachute plan. And what would be your advice for those people who are ready to give up or maybe get more pluridisciplinary? So finding something else such as teaching or maybe finding something um, like a cooking channel? <laughs> 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 to find a secondary income. Do you think that it happens a lot and do you yourself feel prepared for that? Well, I would imagine it must be happening a good deal. I mean, I don't, in my own personal experience, I don't think I know uh, musicians who have had to kind of switch to a different focus, but um, am I prepared for that personally? Well, so far it hasn't come to that. I hope not. I've never actually had to work a non-music job. I've always been uh, been lucky in that I've been able to make a living as a, as a pianist. And um, But what you were mentioning about like um, teaching, though, that's that's actually very interesting because I feel like for, for most musicians, I would say 95% of musicians <laughs> working in the world today, I made that statistic up, but you, <laughs> right, you're you, yeah. <laughs> my phd allows me to do that but anyway <laughs> anyway a large majority of musicians working in the world today do a great deal of educating even if they don't teach one-on-one -on -one, i mean there's almost always as like educational component and teaching actually is a huge part for a lot of musicians so for me also i mean a lot of my income comes from teaching even though I consider myself to be a performer and a, you know, a concert pianist and everything, it's, um, it's difficult, you know, unless you're at the very top, top, top of the profession, it's very difficult to make a living just from, you know, gigs and performing and so forth. You usually have to have some kind of steady supplementary income. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to diversify, to do other things with your music. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, there's a famous 
uh, well, among <laughs> certain circles. There's a famous American composer, Charles Ives. Uh, he was active in the early part of the 20th century. And Ives, I think he had a short stint as a church organist or something like that when he was very young. But then after that, he never made a living from his compositions. He was always, um, he worked as an insurance salesman, actually. He worked in business. He was a very, in fact, he wrote the book on insurance, apparently. He was like a seminal figure in insurance in America. But at the same time, he was, you know, evenings and weekends, he was just kind of scribbling away at these compositions. And later in life, you know, he'd be, somebody finally heard some of his pieces or he had them published himself and they became huge. I mean, he's like one of the most influential figures in kind of the, you know, more esoteric avant-garde music. And he actually said that his experience in business gave him a huge inspiration for his music because he said he experienced a, a positive side to humanity, a certain side to humanity that he might never have experienced just working with musicians, for example, and uh, learn certain things, I, I suppose, from his work as well. So I'm always just kind of thinking about that because there's a certain culture, I feel like, at least in the States, probably everywhere, that, you know, we, we, we specialize on something. We get a lot of training in something. We go through all these degrees so that we can be the best in whatever field that, that we're in. We try to be the best anyway. I think that's actually pretty peculiar to kind of the 20th to 21st century. I, I don't know if it was always like that. There were kind of famous figures in the past who were just remarkably multi-talented who did all these different things and specialization is useful but it would be actually maybe it would add something to what we do as our main focus if we actually could give ourselves the time to explore other areas and, and even make some money off of them too i mean why not so maybe it's a what i'm trying to say is maybe it's a positive change in the in the long run Definitely. And we were talking earlier on a private conversation about the differences in culture, I mean, in Europe, particularly versus the United States, like the amount of freedom you have in what you study versus what you're supposed to work in until you retire. So you know how in Europe, it's pretty expected of you that you'll go into the field that you studied and you'll have to remain in this field to add credibility, to have expertise. And it's also good because you build a lot of seniority within the same company. You earn the respect and also you earn more advantages, more vacation, more bonuses. But in the States, it's also encouraged to travel, to have a minor that's completely different from your major and to also show that you're pluridisciplinary. Like there's not good and wrong way of doing it. There's just um, which culture you fit in might be uh, what's best for your personality traits. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, I don't have enough experience with the system in France. But the more I hear about it, the more I like it, actually, I have to say. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. yeah, and talking about um, going to perform in other countries. So what was it like to perform elsewhere than in the US? Uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, I mean, my first experience outside of the US was in China, actually. So that was a little unusual for me because I was a student at the time. I was an undergrad and I was playing orchestra piano, actually, which is not something I enjoy, <laughs> frankly. I mean, um, you have to just uh, follow a conductor and like be really count a lot of bars of rest. And it's, uh, I find that really stresses me out. But, but anyway, we were, we were doing this tour and I, I did get to play some solo things on that first tour as well. And um, it's just amazing to me. I mean, the experience in China is totally different because classical music is kind of like, it's like a craze over there it's like um especially back then but even even still now i mean they got so excited about every every concert you know they were giving us standing ovations and they would just be the, the audiences were not quiet during the concert that was one huge difference was that they don't, they don't really have the history of these you know attending these events only really since the cultural revolution ended so they've been able to actually kind of you know build up a, a culture of, of concerts and so forth but um the kind of um the basic norms that we're kind of used to of like being really quiet and everything they don't have 
that much conception of them. So we had to get used to that. You know, there's just a, there's a lot of noise in the auditorium, but they're incredibly, you know, enthusiastic and they're loving, loving what we're doing. But is that something that's proper to most Chinese people to not be quiet during a performance? So do you think it has to do with you being a student, therefore getting less respect than if it was a, a high-end performer? Um, no, I don't think so, actually, because, um, I mean, I went back after that in more recent years, and the experience was pretty similar, actually. <laughs> it depended. Uh, I think it depended on the audience, but because there were a couple smaller audiences that I had were more, which were more kind of professionals, and they were, they were much more quiet and kind of respectful and everything. But um, I don't think anyone was trying to be disrespectful in any way. It was just, uh, you know, it, it was kind of like an event. They were just, you know, going to an event, just like going to any other kind of event where you wouldn't normally necessarily think that you would have to be you know, super quiet. You're just, you know, you, if you have a comment you want to say to your neighbor, you, you do. And it's actually interesting because that's exactly how it was in the West, you know, in the past. So if you were to go, for example, to a concert with Beethoven, you know, in like the 1810 or something like that, Beethoven conducting his, his symphonies, the audiences were very noisy back in those days too. It's, it's well documented, you know, they would applaud right in the middle of pieces or they would, you know, talk to their neighbors, whatever. It was, it was a social event and it only kind of gradually became this more kind of rarefied event where you had to be, had to be quiet. There are advantages and disadvantages to it because it actually, the silence in a concert It helps with focus, being able to hear the music and so forth, but it also creates an atmosphere of tension and anxiety in the performer. It can create this kind of atmosphere. And, you know, particularly nowadays, performers oftentimes suffer with really debilitating performance anxiety. And part of it is, you know, that we make this huge kind of event out of a concert and everything's really quiet. And, you, you know, it's on the spot, on that moment, you have to be like an Olympic athlete almost. You have to just like dot every I and cross every T. It reminds me of a story, like a friend of mine took the audition to go to Juilliard in New York. And she auditioned with the piano. And she said that during the audition, someone on the back like purposely threw objects across the room, <laughs> loud noises, like cymbals flying off. And then she stopped her performance to be like, hey, what the hell? And the jury was like, well, you stopped. Goodbye. Because you're not supposed to be deranged by any outside noise, no matter how loud it is. You're supposed to be so concentrated on your piece. And mm. Wait, that sounds fair. Like no one would throw stuff across the room during a normal concert. Yeah, that's just... Too much. That's, that's just cruel, you know. I mean, that that is, <laughs> unfortunately, that's kind of common in certain environments, like perhaps in New York, where it's a little bit more cutthroat. And they try to feel like they're preparing you for the real world, you know, which I can understand from a certain point of view. But um, I don't know. That seems a little cruel. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's a story from the 19th century. There was a famous pianist, Hungarian pianist, Franz Liszt. And he basically invented the solo piano recital. It was, he was the first person who really did this. He just played by himself. And it was considered at the time to be very egotistical because concerts were almost always like uh, variety shows. You would have a singer, you'd have a violinist playing the violin upside down, you know, you'd have an orchestra or whatever. And uh, so for one of his performances, he, he also toured a great deal, one of the first touring musicians, really. And he went to, uh, I can't remember now who it was, It was some potentate of some country. Maybe it was Great Britain or something like that. Whoever it was, this lord who was listening to him play, he was playing something, you know, totally wrapped up in it. And he 
this person, he just started talking to the person next to him in a normal voice. And so list, he just stopped playing, just was just sat there. And the guy said, well, what's the matter? Why did you stop playing? And he, and he said, oh, I didn't want to interrupt your conversation. You know, when you're done talking, uh, let me know and I'll start playing again. <laughs> you know, so. So much balls. <laughs> yeah. So I think the person in the audition, if you get run into that experience in an audition, I say, do it listed. <laughs> well, for the record, she didn't get into the school. But <laughs> she, she didn't get in? Uh, she didn't get into Juilliard, but she got into a, a different university and then turned out good for her. She's teaching. And like you were saying, like, I think teaching is a good part of being a good musician because not only do you learn yourself, but it's important that when you teach somebody to do something, you're also reminding yourself of what you know. One of the greatest part about teaching, I think it's not just unidirectional knowledge flow. It's also you're learning from the other student like, oh, this person asked this question. So I also never wondered why I never asked myself this kind of question. Yeah. So it's also helping you becoming a good performer. And like you were saying, it's complementary to your own skill set because yeah. then you're also more exposed to diversity and it's good to play with others. It's good to play uh, for others. <laughs> and okay. I, like, I like your perspective on it. So when did you start teaching actually? That's a little hard to pinpoint. Well, <laughs> I guess I started really seriously teaching when I started my doctorate because, uh, you know, I had to, <laughs> obviously. Uh, I wanted to get into it anyway, but uh, I had a few students before that. I had a student here, a student there, but uh, so that would, would have been 2013 when I really like started having uh, more students. Uh, in my doctorate, I had to do a group class and I had to do mostly teaching non-music majors solo lessons as well, one-on-one -on -one lessons. Yeah, that was a big shift in my thinking because I'd always kind of thought before, oh, you know, I just wanted to be a performer. I just wanted to do my thing and uh, not worry about, <laughs> you know, day-to-day -day things. And it, be it began to become increasingly obvious, though, that uh, I probably wasn't going to be the next Long Long or something like that. <laughs> Not to say there's anything wrong with being Long Long, but it's, um, it's very hard to work at that kind of level. So I, I went into it with some trepidation. I was kind of like, oh, what is this going to be like? Am I going to really enjoy this? And um, what I discovered was exactly what you're saying, actually. It, it brought certain things out into the open that I never thought about. I mean, some things I was so used to just being instinctive about. I never really thought about... I don't know, how to teach a scale to someone. Like, I was just used to it. I've, I've played scales for all my time as, as a pianist. I was kind of used to just being able to do them. Like, how do you get from the point of not being able to do them to being able to do them? It's a big hurdle for when you're, you know, you're not an expert. And that, in turn, caused me to kind of look into details about my playing that I hadn't thought about. And that really it enriched my experience in my own practicing and then just what I was able to accomplish. It really enriched my practicing, my experience, my concerts and everything. So now I don't think I would want to give up teaching. So I, I, I went 180 on that one completely. And going back on this issue of the pandemic, what mm -hmm. do you think about teaching online and like how, how did uh -huh. you manage to make it happen? Um... <laughs> I was extremely skeptical at first that it was going to work. <laughs> and it is, I mean, it is kind of difficult to find students because a lot of students think that it might, you know, it's just not going to work. They, they would rather meet in person. But surprisingly, it's actually kind of useful in a way, the separation that you get now, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one very simple thing, which is just a practical thing, but it's actually easier to demonstrate for people because you know, unless you're in a studio with two pianos, usually you have to like kick the student up the piano and then show them something and then they come back. It's kind of awkward, actually. <laughs> <Like> move. <laughs> yeah. And after a while, they get a sixth sense 
kids, they just like jump off the seat when you want to show them something. But over Zoom, I, you know, it's simple. I just have my camera there. Uh, I can even do an overhead view maybe. And, um, you know, I can just show them something, they play back. It's actually kind of convenient that way. Uh, the one thing that I had to figure out a way to get around was just that there's a, too much distortion, you know. So I can get a general idea of what they're doing, but not quite specific enough over just over a streaming, like a Zoom or some platform like that. So I figured out a system where people will send me their recordings, actually. They'll make recordings every week and send them to me. And so I can really get a more accurate impression of what they're doing. And with that and everything else, we're able to zero in on the, the reality of it, you know. So um, yeah, surprisingly enough, like uh, the whole experience, there's been some downsides, but also some upsides. And uh, yeah, I'm surprised it actually turned out to be very, very practical. That's actually really smart because when I heard about singers practicing, they usually record themselves so they can hear it out and it's something I've never done. So, okay, listeners, I did 11 years of piano and I still suck. <laughs> <laughs> never in my entire life have I thought about recording myself to hear about my own mistakes and that's actually how you improve. It's looking back. You know, when you play, you can't really judge at the same time. So it's nice that you have this recording, but I'm also wondering if the recording would make the student more nervous because... It happens a lot in my podcast that people like fidget, like they, they also don't feel as natural as if it was in person because you don't have the pressure of, okay, if it's recorded, it's going to be there for your entire life. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think there is that kind of pressure, yes. I mean, I think for my students, it's not so so bad because they do it every week so they become become a nerd to it and um it's actually a really helpful thing though because especially as a musician i don't know about other other disciplines but when you're a musician it's like a totally different experience like if you play a piece for yourself and you get you become really good at playing that piece by yourself and then you play it for one person you, you play it for a cat <laughs> or you could play it for someone who knows nothing about music. It doesn't matter. The whole experience just changes for the, for the player. It's, it's uncanny. You become hyper aware of every little thing that you're doing, all the little subtleties, things that you just took for granted before you suddenly become like super like, oh, is that okay? Is that right what I'm doing? And you also start to like second guess yourself like, oh, am I, am I going to mess up? Or is this, am I playing the right part? You know, just even worse if you're playing by memory, you know, it's just, it can become horrible. So one of the drawbacks about being in a pandemic is that it's not easy to find opportunities to play for people because it's, it's something that you really have to do regularly. You have to either play for people or find some way to give yourself similar awareness <laughs> for one of a better word, you know. So, so it's actually very helpful <laughs> that they have to record for themselves uh, because it just gives them a different kind of pressure that they have to live up to. And I, I found that it makes them, my students more professional in their performances. You know, they have to kind of put it on the line at some point, you know, they can't just practice. It makes week. a lot of sense because when I took yeah. the piano, uh, the entire year, we would just be one-on-one -on -one with my tutor and no audience at all. And once a year, we would have to play this concert in front of our parents. And I'm like, why did we never have this preparation of performing in public? Like, why do I perform so much worse in front of people? Because I've never been prepared to this type of situation. And you're right, it depends on your goal. So you can play for yourself in your garage and not ever show your work to anybody. But like, does it mean that it's less good as someone else? No, it just means that you're not sharing it. It's a personal choice. But like, if you eventually want to perform and go out there, which is the goal for most people, it's like you would be able to play good enough to entertain others. Then it's important that during your lesson, you include that pressure. So you learn to manage it and you learn to master your emotions about not freaking out. And like, what happens if uh, you feel like someone's speaking too loud behind me? Like it's <laughs> kind of things that is part of a, 
training someone to be a good performance? Like, do you really perform if there's no audience? I'm glad we're talking about this because it's, it's kind of a sad thing, actually, because a lot of people, performers, wonderful performers, they suffer from really terrible nerves when they perform. And I think part of the reason why it lasts a long time, like through their careers, they just is because they think maybe that there's something kind of wrong with them, in a sense. I mean, that they feel this way, that they feel nervous about presenting what they have to an audience. And really, there's nothing abnormal about it. In fact, it's, it's, it doesn't even have to do with what we're, what we're doing. It's, it's the same as anything. Like if you were washing dishes, for example, and you had an audience of 20,000 people watching you wash dishes, you would feel pretty nervous. You know, you'd be like, oh God, <laughs> am I going to drop this? Uh, I mean, it's obviously it's worse when you're doing some kind of a, a skill that's so complicated, but it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you yourself. It's, it's just a normal thing. You just, you know, just get used to it and it gets better. You can really, you can really master those things. Talking about the importance of having an audience, like can you explain the differences between an audience in real life at a concert hall versus the audience you would find on YouTube, like the people who would listen to you through your YouTube channels? Do you think that you're trying to target a different crowd? Well, maybe. I, at first, I was going to say no, <laughs> because I mean, I don't know that I'm necessarily trying to target one specific demographic or one specific crowd, but actually maybe so, because on YouTube, you might get people who would never go to a concert. So I, I would love that. I would love if I could get someone who never heard music before or this kind of music before anyway, and that they just, you know, become an addict as a result of, of hearing me. So I remember one time, for example, this is one of my fondest memories. It was not a concert. I was just in the school at University of Michigan, where I went to school, they have a commons and there's a little piano in the commons. It's a kind of a rinky dinky piano. It's not in very good shape, but every once in a while, just kind of for fun, I'd be walking by and, you know, and I would just kind of sit down and play something, usually kind of late at night when no one was around because I didn't want to bug people, you know, whatever. But So I sat down and I started playing the Liszt Sonata. So the Liszt Sonata is a, is a very long piece. It's a very, one of the great piano pieces. And uh, the same guy who was telling the nobleman to shut up, <laughs> I was just playing along. And at one point, I just happened to look up and I saw there was this guy standing there. He must have just been walking by and he was just kind of standing there listening. And so I just kept going until the end of the piece. And then he walked over and he asked me, like, what is that piece that you were playing? And like, what is that? And so I told him, I've never heard anything like that before in my, <laughs> in my life. So he like wrote down the name and the composer and everything. And you know, that kind of thing, that's special. That makes you feel like great because it's like this person never would have experienced this, you know, this kind of life-changing piece of music otherwise. And, you know, maybe he's going to hear more things that'll be meaningful to him. It'll affect his life in a good way. So I'm kind of hoping actually that through YouTube, I'll reach some people like that. People who will be like, um, you know, I've never heard a piece of piano music <laughs> before and now I absolutely love it and I'm, I'm hooked. Okay, so Cole, you're specialized in classical music, which has very melodious tones, and it's usually like pretty soothing, and very, very few people would hate classical music. You know, it's like one of the relaxing moments when you like to study with it, you like to relax to it, and it's very appealing to the human ear because like it's in order, it's harmonious. But had you played something very loud, like heavy metal and an electric guitar, do you think that you would have more people coming to you and be like, uh, dude, stop playing that? 
because that happened it, it was like this weird this weird job at a, at a hospital and there's this dude coming every friday afternoon playing the bike pipe and he was uh. playing very good he was playing the same repertoire starting with titanic and we would all be like oh my god it's summer should we just close the windows to not hear this guy or suffer from heat because this is really really bad and the bike pipe is not it's not for everyone, but the piano is pretty soothing. You know, it's everyone's first choice when they want to start the music. And it feels like it, it's giving you more chances to make a change and make people love music. Like people agree upon the fact that it's universally more melodious to begin with. That's, I'm very gratified to hear that uh, way of putting it. This might be a difference in kind of like the countries that we've lived in. I mean, you've lived in the U.S. too, but um, that's not always been the experience that I've had. It's interesting that you say that it's like soothing and melodious and everything like that. Because for pianists, we're constantly dealing with like our neighbors complaining and everything like that. Because actually the piano is a really loud instrument if you're next to it. <laughs> if you're like living you're next to door. like the drums or saxophone. <laughs> You know, I, I know. it's actually, you'd be surprised. It's really loud. If you have like a grand piano and just the last place that I lived, I moved, but, um, you know, I was dealing with complaints, you know, from people were kind of bothered by my practicing. Yeah. And I don't know, in the, in the United States, I think the, the culture about classical music, sometimes we have this culture in the United States where we're almost proud to not know things, to kind of be a little bit ignorant about things or a little rugged, a little rough about things. And so classical music is oftentimes kind of seen as a pretentious, elitist thing. Uh, you know, it's like, why would anyone want to listen to that or you know, know anything about that? Which I think is not the case in, in Europe or Canada necessarily. So yeah, I've always kind of thought of it as being, I'm kind of fighting against the grain more than anything else because there's kind of this stigma about classical music being snobbish you know in, in the united states i i feel like you're definitely yeah. right i recall having that in paris because i did grow mm -hmm. up in not the most fortunate quarters but mm -hmm. i did go to school in this very very rich neighborhood where it was the norm for girls to play the piano or the violin and to do classical ballet and for dudes to also play like some sort of instruments as well a lot of people playing the harp could afford mm -hmm. like very expensive instruments and it was pretty much the norm because growing up in Paris, we do take for granted that the arts are everywhere. And we have this diversity of music, of theater plays, and it's just amazing like to have so much access to it, but it's true that we don't really question what does it represent. So you know how music has this heavy history in the United States, like blues being uh, related to slavery and stuff like that. So there's a huge history behind it. I'm sure it's the same case in Europe. It's just that it's sort of the norm for the bourgeoisie to mm. play the piano. And it was weird if you did not play an instrument. Oh, I see. Well, that would be a good thing to <laughs> transplant it into the U.S. I think it's not, I think it's not as normal to be, to play an instrument, uh, you know, in, in the United States. I just remember like hearing a totally different genre, but hearing Billy Joel talk about being bullied when he was a kid, you know, just because he played piano. <laughs> you know, those things are kind of, kind of sad to hear, but. <laughs> I remember the friend of mine who bragged about playing the piano so much and he would put, and he would practice for so many hours that he got his bedroom insonorized, a double wall, you know, so no, uh. nobody could hear him. Except <laughs> The ceiling and the floor was not insulated. So mm -hmm. neighbor could hear him type the keys because he would put headphones to be considerate, mm -hmm. but he would like press the keys so hard that the neighbors would make a complaint about it. Oh my God. <laughs> There's just no way to win, you know? It's just <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I practice so much, but like people are repressing my talents. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like that. <laughs> it's very, uh, yeah. 
a difficult situation. You don't want to drive people insane, but at the same time, it's, mm-hmm. something you have to, it's something you have to work on a lot. It's true. That's why I was mentioning the piano as something more harmonious. It's not something yeah. as, that you can't really screw up, like the violin, where at the beginning it really sounds harsh mm-hmm. when you practice yeah. getting the right notes or something like the saxophone, which can sound squeaky at first. Piano is yeah. pretty melodious, and it's a sound that people appreciate when they hear it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you that then. <laughs> <laughs> So what about other areas of your life? So you've dealt with music your whole life, but uh, let's talk a little bit about dance. All right. Well, I hope you're not going to ask me to dance or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's a podcast. People wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's true. Yeah. (laughs) So did you have to play in shows that also collaborated with performance with dancers when you were playing in the back, for example? Uh, There was one occasion. When I did work with a dancer, yes, I, I remember this now. It was for a, uh, it was for a, a very specialized performance. I think it was with the clarinetist, if I remember this correctly. It was a more modern piece, and they had a choreographed a dancer with it as well. I have seen various performances with dance. I mean, I, it's one of my kind of my <laughs> hobbies. I like going to to dance to like a ballet and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Those, those sort of shows, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I haven't had a huge amount of experience myself playing with dancers. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking you this because I last year I went to this amazing concert. It was classical music, but in the middle piece, they introduced a, a clarinet player and mm. he came on stage with socks, like literally socks. And as soon as he started playing, he also started dancing at the same time. And it was part of the show to merge playing an instrument and also moving your body as if you just become one. And I was wondering if that's, that's something becoming more popular or is it something in Montreal? I'm not sure. Uh, definitely. I think, I mean, I think that kind of interdisciplinary thing is very popular. I mean, at the university we have, University of Michigan, I mean, because I still kind of freelance and do work there. Um, they do have a very active dance department and they're always trying to kind of, you know, create performances with the music department, with the piano department. Even just in the way people perform their instruments, though, I feel like movement is something which is way more almost expected nowadays. Because if you look, uh, maybe if you look like 60, 50, 60 years ago at a, at a performer, I don't know, look at um, a violinist like David Oistrak, a Soviet-era violinist, and he's a wonderful violinist, and he would just stand like a like a mountain he was just like a like a rock standing there absolutely still while he played and uh, amazing player but nowadays it'd be very rare actually to see a violinist who just kind of stands there usually they kind of you know they sway they you know sometimes they even make faces which that kind of sometimes bothers me but <laughs> i've seen um, that i've also <laughs> seen pianists so you know like huh. raising their hands above their heads yes show, like whenever they just go up the scales and then just like raising it like throwing their hands yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's very fashionable now i mean um it's not really my style but it's um it's kind of something that people like to do in a way it's kind of an it's a good thing actually because you do want to be kind of flexible on your body especially in something like piano where you're just kind of sitting there you want to feel like you're free in your shoulders your arms and everything the performative aspects are you can argue endlessly about whether that's a good thing or not but other parts about it are kind of nice (laughs) you don't want to be stiff yeah 
for sure. That's uh, super interesting because you were talking about uh, teaching on Zoom. And I remembered when I was taking piano lessons that posture was a huge element in having like a good play. Is that mm -hmm. uh, I remember my teacher like always putting her finger at the bottom of my back, you know, like to just oh, yeah. make me sit up straight. And yeah. now that you're promoting and talking about movement, do you think that it's not always about, you know, having like this stiff posture and being as straight as a mountain, like you were saying, but also it's okay to slouch. It's okay to move. It's okay to go right and left. It's okay to sort of dance a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think so. I think it really has to do with your own sense of kind of self-expression, you know, like what really works for you. Uh, because um, in the case of like Oystrak, who I was talking about, I mean, it, it, he wasn't actually stiff. I think he was very free actually, but he was just still, but then some other pianists, or musicians, you know, they just, it's very natural for them. They, they really feel like they lose something if they don't let themselves move, you know? So I wouldn't want to be an authoritarian about it and just say, you know, you have to move because if you don't move, you're going to be stiff or you can't move. If you move, you're going to, you know, it's going to be distracting or whatever. I, I like the fact that it's more open and that you can kind of, you know, find your individual self-expression, the way that works for you. And before you start a class, do you encourage your students to sort of have a warm-up, you know, like shoulders, wrists, fingers, as really like uh, before starting, a, I don't know, a soccer game, you would also move to warm up your muscles. Well, yeah, my students usually don't do it. <laughs> I, I do. I do kind of encourage that. I mean, especially if you're more advanced and you're like practicing for long periods, it's kind of vital, I think, to just kind of like stand up and do some kind of stretches. I have like a little series of stretches that I recommend just for releasing some tension because we tend to get a lot of tension in our shoulders in particular. And it's important to kind of release that. I mean, your shoulders actually become very strong <laughs> playing piano. A lot, of the, a lot of the playing power actually comes from there. So, but um, yeah, and there's also exercises on the piano too, which I kind of recommend for just warming up, getting kind of, you want to feel kind of like you're, you're just kind of warm and flowing flowing at the instrument and it's not always the easiest way to do that if you just jump in into your repertoire so you're talking about personal preferences on the sort of movement and personal expression on your music but do you find a relationship with culture as well so you know how in asia we're usually more composed and mm. we want to to look like we have our emotions mastered which is like mm -hmm. you have to fight that when you're playing music because it's also an expression of yourself but did you find that it's more free in north america and europe where emotions are encouraged versus repressed right kind of stoicism mm -hmm. um that's really interesting you know because <laughs> when you think about kind of like the the famous performers nowadays from different countries it's actually the ones from asia who are the most demonstrative because I, i think of, of some like long long or um yundi lee you know they they make a lot of motions a lot of they make uh, some facial you know they, they kind of almost try to express the music with their faces as well I, w i won't say if that's good or bad but that's kind of interesting i almost wonder if they're like if that's like a kind of compensation for like the you know the social expectation that you'll be a little bit more stoic you know people who actually make it as artists they actually want to kind of counteract that somehow i mean because that tradition of more stoicism in performance i feel like that belongs to you know like the soviet tradition or um european musicians actually it was it was more common to be kind of impassive on the exterior but then have a lot of soul and passion in your music actually. yeah and having yeah. performed in all those different countries did you have to consciously or unconsciously adjust your performance to the social expectations of moving versus not moving no i didn't feel the need to do that i didn't i didn't adjust my movements i, I 
I'm, I'm kind of set in my <laughs> ways, maybe in that regard. I feel comfortable the way that I play. I did adjust my way of playing in other facets. So I know that in Asia, for example, particularly in China, when I played in, in various places in China, I kind of felt the need to play in a more just musically in a more flamboyant kind of way or a more kind of gripping way. And I, I wasn't so concerned about note perfection or being really clean or I wasn't trying to like present this shiny, beautiful little object. I was more kind of just going for big effect. And I think that was, it was mainly just instinctive or probably fueled by the, the feeling I was getting from the audiences, you know, so. Yeah, is that a fight for attention? If the audience is making noises, not giving attention, you're like, hey, look at me. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So, <laughs> that's another way it changes the dynamic. You know, we just, particularly solo musicians, we're just, you know, we try to be humble, but we're egotistical at heart. We can't help it. <laughs> so we just, uh, you know, we always want people to be, you know, listening to our playing and everything. So, yeah, I think in that situation, it does, we uh, compensate for it. We just kind of try to push ourselves out there, grab people's attention. You brought up a very, very cool and very debatable topic, the ego. Mm -hmm. So this is something we hear a lot about STEM fields, science fields, but like mm -hmm. it, it exists in every field actually. And what do you think about this in arts? Do you think that it's helping people create something that they're more passionate about, something that it would push them to do better? Or do you think it's something more destructive? And if pianists or not even necessarily, but musicians collaborated more, so we could come up with something more creative and go further along. This might go on for like, a, my reply might go on for like an hour <laughs> talking about this. Yeah. I, I think, in a sense, the ego is vital because you have to have the feeling that what you're doing is real worth. Just apart from even anyone's validation of what you're doing, you have to really feel that this is really important and what you're doing is meaningful and it, it's going to be impactful. Even if it's only for yourself, it's going to be really impactful. On the other hand, uh, especially among pianists, I think there's really a danger of insularity. So, so uh, th there's kind of a culture of it even uh, among pianists because we've, we feel that somehow if you're involved in collaborating with someone else, somehow it's like it's taking something away from the piano. It's, it's hard to explain actually, but it's, it's kind of like the way that composers write for the piano. For example, if you're playing in a quartet, you're playing a piano quartet, so you have like a violinist, a violist, a cellist, the piano writing is not going to be as heavy and you're going to have to make room for them at certain points. You're going to have to kind of follow them sometimes. You're going to have to play quieter sometimes so that they can be heard. And that kind of thing, it's almost like some musicians kind of look down on that, like it's compromise, you know. They're compromising their vision. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that, that what you're really doing is you're creating a connection with someone else. In a way, you're learning from them because you're, you are experiencing the way that they experience music in time. So all of you are having this experience together and you're all kind of adjusting. At least it should be. You're all kind of adjusting and fitting together. And that, I think, just makes you more versatile and more universal in, in the music that you create when you're just on your own. I feel like it gives you enormous perspective so it's always a, a tightrope walk though if you're if you're like me i i really enjoy playing in ensembles smaller ensembles you know like a trios quartets duos and so forth and but it's always a tightrope walk because there's egos involved and sometimes someone will try to kind of run the show and bend other people to themselves and you know what do you do in that situation sometimes it gets very tense 
sometimes the tension actually results in a really exciting performance where it's like you don't know like are, are these two personalities going to meld or not or you know is it going to fall apart but how could you fight about this if the music sheet is already written so that happens if you're playing someone else's work but i guess the dynamic is different if you're composing and you're trying to get attention because then the dice are not rolled like you're not You don't mm -hmm. know who's going to play what for how long and for how loud if you haven't composed the music yet. But like if you're playing someone else's song, then you already know who's going to get what. It's not a big surprise. So how do you fight for attention when something's already scripted? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um, <laughs> so with with composed, you know, with like written out pieces, it's surprising how much leeway there is. I mean, you don't realize that until you really get into it and you try to do it. You know, there can be enormous differences in how a piece can sound just by how you balance the instruments, like who is louder and who's softer. And this is a, this is a constant issue in a quartet. You know, the cellist, oftentimes I've had it happen, the cellist is like, you know, nobody can hear me. I want to be louder here, you know, so everybody has to kind of accommodate that. No, there's definitely ways to kind of make yourself heard. <laughs> <when you're, laughs> you know, there's even ridiculous stories like Yasha Heifetz, a famous violinist, he was recording a trio with a couple of other very famous artists, like pianist and cellist. And the pianist and the violinist, they did not get along. They were great. You know, the recordings are actually really good, but they didn't get along. And the pianist was insisting that the violinist during the recording session was edging closer to the mic so that he would get more <laughs> balance in the final recording, you know? It's stuff like that, you know? It can get really petty and ridiculous sometimes, but... I can see, I can see this happening in science because it's always a race towards who's going to publish first, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it matters if you are third author versus fourth author, even though oh. you're pretty much at the bottom of the list of authors. So <laughs> <how much? laughs> what, are you, what are you fighting for? It's, it's the same. No one's going to... Like, everybody remembers the article for the first author, but, like, whether you're third or fourth, eh. Is that battle worth fighting for? Especially like in the orchestral world, it's very, you know, whether you're like third stand or second stand from the front. Or <laughs> a little And do you think this competition happens more in school? Is that something that's implied when you go through your program? Or do you think it's something that you build more in the, in the workforce when you have to fend for yourself and get contracts, especially as a freelancer, you really have to put yourself forward? You know, surprisingly, I think it's actually more competitive in school. And <laughs> I'll tell you why, because when you are actually in the world, when you're out there, you realize that your being able to get work depends on other people liking you and referring you and, you know, just being willing to acknowledge you as a, as a professional. But in school, everybody has kind of this idea, you know, we're, we're kind of like cut off from reality and we all kind of think, oh, I'm just going to be the best one. You know, I'm just going to be better than everyone else. And we just kind of shut everyone else out and try to be, try to be the best. I've personally found that actually the higher I went in my degrees, like the closer I got to the real world, the less there was this kind of like really sharp competitive urge among my peers. Of course, there's always a certain competitiveness. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not trying to deny that, but it's, you realize that you do have to cooperate a little bit if you're going to just make any kind of career. You want people to like you. <laughs> maybe it's not the case if you're, again, if you're like Long Long or something, maybe that's not the case because you have a certain base that, uh, which does, doesn't depend on your peers. But um, yeah, if, you're, if you're like most musicians, you have to cooperate a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you had family members like playing music and at a higher level, so how did it teach you to perceive music? Did it perceive you to be a fighter, like to be the best musician? Or did it tell you, look, this has to be a pleasure first. Enjoy mm -hmm. yourself doing it. I never experienced like the um, 
tiger mom thing or anything like that. I, I was never pushed. Um, I just started piano because my brother was playing piano and I wanted to play it. I mean, my mom is a, is a classical guitarist. She teaches and she plays a wonderful guitarist. And I always grew up with that music. And her viewpoint was always that the most important thing is that you were doing what you find satisfaction in, that you love doing this, that, yeah, there was never any pressure, you know, to do this or that. And I don't want to say that's the only way <laughs> that things should be, but um, I do feel now, I, I feel like it's, it was my choice. You know, I, I really wanted to, to make it work and I kind of went for it with the best I could. Turned out to be, but um, at least I have ownership over that, which is, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm very thankful for that. And do you think it was a career move to move, especially to Ann Arbor? because the music scene might be bigger than where you come from? It was definitely a good move. I don't know if I was consciously thinking of that at the time, but because um, I came to Ann Arbor just to do my master's first. And at that time, I was just kind of had no idea what was going on. I was still kind of living in, living in the clouds. <laughs> yeah, the music scene is, is quite rich here for not necessarily a huge city, but it's, they have a lot of concert series right around here. There's one in Detroit, there's University Musical Society and everything. It's, they have world-class artists and everything coming all the time. So Yeah, I also looked it up. It has this very, very nice program for prisoners to integrate mm. uh, singing and also the arts program for reintegration into society. I feel like he was a very nice and altruistic initiative from the school. So I was wondering if you also participated in that. No, actually, I, I never did. I mean, um, I knew somebody who, was, who did that, actually, though. He was uh, a friend of mine. He, we were basically like the same track in my doctorate. So I, I at least got to hear him talking about that. I mean, it was very moving, some of the things he told me, some of the stories he told me about that. I think maybe he was working in... Uh, I think it was a juvenile detention. I think maybe he worked in the prisons also. I think he did both actually, but some of the stories he was telling me about working with younger kids who were introducing them to music and it was amazing actually. It could be a great therapy for people who are sort of hurting or maybe not feeling loved and accepted by society. It could be like a good ointment to uh, getting some softness, some sweetness into a, a rough life because it's not easy to go to prison, you know? No. No, certainly not. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time on this podcast and for your, all your advice and for giving, uh, for sharing the experience of being a teacher, uh, going on this YouTube channel. And I really like hearing your perspective on your experience and, and your schooling and stuff. Would you happen to have a last piece of advice for our listeners? It's something to be aware of, maybe, if you're going to be a musician, <laughs> is that you know, just be aware, you might need to teach people, <laughs> you know, you might have to learn to cooperate with people. Because I think oftentimes musicians, we kind of think that being a musician will help us to avoid people and avoid difficult situations, social situations. I think that's kind of maybe one reason I got into it, because it was a different world that I could kind of escape from social realities. And it's not really like that. So just, <laughs> just a little heads up about that. Yeah. Thank you so much again. It was a real pleasure to have you here. I hope to see you again on this podcast. It was an amazing conversation. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. If you love the podcast, you can check out my blog, Education Monsters. It's education-monsters.com. You can also support my project on multicultural education by donating on my Patreon page. The link is posted below. If you make a donation, you could have a shout-out on my next article or podcast. You could also choose the subject of my new article or podcast. And if you need French or English lessons, meet me on the italki platform. I'll put the link below. Shoot me a message as well if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast. And may today be the best day of your life. Bye.